0: Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath Episode 6 Bird on a Wire Between 2057 and 2069, the people of Earth faced many trials. Scarcity of resources, plagues, poverty, famine, and despair. The superpowers of the Earth fell into factions, each armed with its own doomsday arsenal. Diplomacy failed, and civilization came to an end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. General Benjamin Castro, the Israeli government's special envoy to the United Nations was relocated from the UN headquarters in New York City to an underground base. During transport, General Castro was knocked unconscious and preserved in cryostasis. The general awoke 43 years later in a subterranean society built by survivors of the United Nations. Revived by the Phoenix Project, General Castro was introduced to Phoenix law enforcement officer Major Leonard McGillicuddy and Professor John Bath. If they could work together, Castro, Cuddy, and Bath would lead the first expedition to the Earth's surface. Aided by Project Administrator Danielle Devenu, Chief Surgeon Miro Ganaya, and Engineer Donna Chang, their mission was to determine what life still existed on the world above and if the survivors in the underground Phoenix Project could return. In the Phoenix Project's top secret laboratory, Engineer Donna Chang plunged into an alcove of thick cables and machinery. She checked the terminal, and then turned back to Dr. Miral Ganaya. Doctor, I detected some interference a moment ago. Across the room, Ganaya monitored the egg-shaped porcelain containers, the so-called coffins in which General Castro, Major McGillicuddy, and Dr. Bath lay. What is it? Gania asked. One of Chang's machines that perpetually blinked, buzzed, and beeped was silent. In a rare expression of concern, Chang gasped audibly. Gania crossed the laboratory, standing behind Chang. An overabundance of information in the green stream. Chang smacked the square console with her palm. It's... it's too much for the conduit to send and receive in real time. Dr. Bass' simulacrum is overloading. Ganaya turned quickly. His vitals are spiking. She watched the row of LCD and LED screens in front of the coffins. All of their life signs are spiking. We have to get them out of there. Chang ignored Ganaya. The engineer focused on coaxing more power from the generators to the consciousness transference modules. Hold on, Doctor. Chang modulated her voice from concern to calm. We knew something like this could happen. Gania flipped a switch on Dr. Bath's coffin. She watched Bath's heart rate fluctuate. His brainwave spiked, then stabilized as if he were sleeping. What are you doing? Gania asked. I'm trying to amplify the power. If we can draw more... Gania looked at the ceiling... Massive power cables snaked overhead, down one wall and into Chang's mishmash of antiquated and upgraded tech. The laboratory is on a power ration, Chang. We can't draw more power without permission from the council. Chang finally turned. Her face contorted in an expression Ganaya didn't expect. We can't let them die, can we? Just earlier that morning, Ganaya verbally braced the engineer about her motivations. Were Chang's intentions as part of the mission selfish? She had accused the other woman of having a lack of confidence in General Castro, Cuddy, and Bath. She even suggested Chang believed she was a worthier candidate to participate in the expedition. I'm pulling the plug. I hovered over the conduits supplying power to the three coffins. I'm getting them out of there. If you do that, Miral, it will be the same as sacrificing them. Let me do my job. What? Saving the simulacrum? Their robot bodies? What good is that? Calm yourself. Chang pulled cables, reorganized, and refitted them. I'm saving this mission, she said, then flipped a switch. General Castro saw Dr. John Bath's simulacrum sprawled on the floor. A man hovered over Bath, his movements furtive, bestial. Coming a bit close there, eh, old boy? the man snarled. Make a move and I'll slice him like a tender, dead kitty. Kashro made out the rusted, straight razor aimed at Bath's throat. He wondered if Bath's robot body still operated. In the laboratory, Chang had told the explorers their simulacrum were more resilient than their human bodies. They could withstand the elements and pain more readily. Kashro wondered, if Bath was damaged, was he in pain? Did his human body in the lab, encased in the porcelain coffin, suffer injury? You got them cans on ya? asked the other man. Castro hesitated but held his ground. He looked at Bath, then back at the scavenger. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Hmm. No cans? No dope? No guns? The man crept towards Castro. Then what good are you? Castro held his hands out in a fighting stance. Bath? He called out, hoping to rouse the fallen scientist. John? The scavenger's laughter was a hyena cackle. (laughs) I crept up on him. Whacked him for good. But he's not dead, you dig? Castro considered the source of the scavenger's guttural dialect. An awkward mix of international slang and cannibalized accents. Still... The scavenger continued, fearlessly. It come closer, and we gonna flip for sure. Castro paused, then said, If that's the way it's gotta be. Before the beast could attack, Castro anticipated, leaping into the other man. He sideswiped the scavenger with a hard knee to his midsection, a swift hand to the back of the head. His blow was measured, or so he thought. It shouldn't have been enough to throw the man to the floor, but it did. The scavenger tumbled. Castro spun, readying himself for another attack. The man hunched low, and then leapt, his razor flashing between them. General Castro kept his eyes on the blade. He grappled the scavenger, getting hold of his arm. With one precise motion, Castro snapped the scavenger's forearm. The scavenger dropped the razor. That's it, Castro insisted. Enough. As if shrugging off pain, attacking without thought or choice, The man leapt at Castro again. His good arm swung wildly. His cracked one dangled loosely. Castro made swift use of his attacker's momentum, turning it against him. The general moved behind the other man, gaining a firm hold on his neck. Don't make me, Castro uttered. He choked the scavenger with his right arm. His left forced the man's head downward. The scavenger wriggled violently, then helplessly. Then his eyes rolled and closed slowly. He gasped, passing into unconsciousness. Castro pushed the warm body off him. He had no doubt the creature was human. Muscles formed in abnormal grooves predominantly along the man's arms, but not his torso. His quadriceps were especially powerful, but not his calf muscles. He wore stained rags and mismatched boots for clothing, Dirt and grime covered his skin. General, Cuddy approached behind Castro. Is he... I had to dispatch this one, Castro motioned to the scavenger. What about the other two? The same, Cuddy said. What about Bath? I I don't know. Castro walked to where the doctor's simulacrum lay. There seems to be something wrong with his body. He felt Bath's neck. The back of his head was ice cold. Castro turned and looked up, and he saw Major McGillicuddy's hands and coveralls dripping crimson. Are you all right? Cuddy shrugged. Yeah. Half a smirk molded into his flexible pseudoskin lips. This ain't my blood. Hell, I'm not even sure these robots bleed. Castro nodded. He turned back to Dr. Bath. John, John. It's General Castro. Benjamin. Wake up. Can you hear me? John. John Bath drifted in and out of consciousness in a paradoxical sleep state. In the coffin, he was unable to discern the corporeal world from a waking dream. Puzzle pieces of memory blended with imagination. John heard his father's voice, deep but kind, an Irish accent he practiced tirelessly to be rid of. John, his father spoke half sarcastically, there's no point in celebrating our ancestry. That's all over with all we are is the Phoenix Project. Bass' mother, brilliant and beautiful with a fair complexion, a slender body, and a strangely childlike way about her, commanded her husband with the same candid force of will she used to negotiate with officials in the project. Dear Mid, John remembers everything. John saw them clearly, saw himself. He was an early talker, a swift learner who mastered both of his parents' accents and mannerisms by the time he ceased waddling across blue carpeting in Dear Midbass's workroom. He was proficient imitating or otherwise mocking the melange of American, European, and Asian dialects he heard in the Quad. He imagined himself there, now speaking fluently with children who looked nothing like him. Later, they passed notes written in other languages, made up games to pass the time. There was, after all, very little for children to do in the Phoenix Project. He remembered Dean Rand, the head of the academy, coming to their cell-like quarters. Rand was beautiful then, tall and elegant, with broad shoulders and long fingers. She spoke little, but she spoke with presence. "'You must,' she told John's parents, "'give him over to the old tutors. John is an autodidact with an eidetic memory.' There will come a time when it will be impossible for him to have meaningful relationships with the other children. His talent should be nurtured, not laid to waste. She meant this to be kind, a compliment. John watched his mother consider Dean Rand's offer as she cautiously weighed all the opportunities. His father, however, tightened his forehead. He rejected Dean Rand and her colleagues without hesitation, speaking to his wife. We're not going to be living underground forever, Caitlin. Drifting in and out of consciousness and sleep, Bath remembered his father's stubbornness, his tenacity. He was a soldier no longer at war, a leader with no one to lead. Dearman Bath spoke rarely to his son about his experiences in the military, but occasionally he mentioned being transferred to a posting as a special attaché and bodyguard for John's mother, the UK ambassador to the United Nations. That was how they met, and that's why they were together in New York City when the world came to an end. John knew it was only natural to think of his parents when philosophizing on the subject of love, romance, and intimacy. Their love story coincided with the end of their world, and the beginning of his. Maybe this was why John found little satisfaction, rationalizing or reasoning on the subject of love. Instead, he preferred cold, calculating logic. And even then, whether wandering through the Phoenix Project, or trapped in the transference coffin in this intraconscious state, Something was undeniably missing. Dr. Gania wrapped her fist against Dr. Bass' transference module. Chang, we're losing them. We're not losing them, Chang replied. Look, the General and the Major's life signs are stabilizing. Something is wrong with Dr. Bass' simulacrum. The interference. Gania rushed from Bass' coffin to the biometric control panel. You're drawing too much power, Chang vast body can't compensate for the influx of information. If you overload the green stream, he'll end up paralyzed like General Castro, or worse, brain dead. I know what I'm doing, Chang said, as she adjusted a dial. It gave her resistance, but she showed no sign of difficulty. I can manually adjust the flow, cycle it down, and... Wait. Chang rolled away from the power console. She watched Ganaya intently. What are you doing? Dr. Ganaya depressed controls on the porcelain chamber. Its pressurized lid retracted slightly. I'm injecting bath with a cocktail of synthetic glucocorticoids. Ganaya tapped a long syringe. Behind the doctor and the engineer, the laboratory doors opened. Danielle Devenu entered unexpectedly. Why is the power fluctuating in this block? She strode purposefully across the laboratory, with a foreign intensity in her usually well-measured voice, What's going on? Ganiah said nothing. Chang swiveled in her chair and faced the project administrator. Something happened in the transmission. The two of them watched as Dr. Ganiah reached between the opening and the porcelain coffin. Cool air and chemical vapors crawled from the edges of the chamber. There. Ganiah withdrew her hand in the syringe from Bath's coffin. She exhaled, relieved. That should do it. If his neurological system can tolerate and process the hormones, we can save him long enough to pull him out." Danielle stood between the doctor and the engineer. "'We aren't cleared to draw more power than we are allotted. We have to get permission from the council. Chang?' Chang rolled her chair into the alcove of electronics and makeshift power supplies. "'I'm pulling him back,' she said." Ganaya watched the biometric displays, the EKG, EEG, and report on fluid distribution. He's coming around. There. Devenu approached Gania cautiously. She saw how important this was to the physician, to the mission. Doctor? Doctor Bath? John? Can you hear me? Devenu reached past Gania. She activated the hydraulic mechanism that retracted the lid to the chamber. Devenu was neither an engineer or physician. But she had seen Ganai and Chang operate the controls enough to have some familiarity with the laboratory, the coffins, and their major components. Doctor Bath roused slowly, as if from a long slumber. Every muscle felt strained, exhausted. Uh, I—I thought—I thought I saw my mother, my father. Where was I? As the remaining vapor dissipated, Gania leaned forward. You're in the lab. She couldn't help but remember when she and Chang revived General Benjamin Castro. The experience came with a significant accomplishment and great cost. Bath tried clearing his throat, opening his eyes. A dewy liquid covered his eyelashes and lips. From her station nearby, Chang spoke. Your simulacrum was damaged. We had to bring you back. Bath reached out blindly. Ganaya held his forearm. I was knocked out. I thought I was... What happened? Devenu said, leaning closer. I don't know. I, I don't feel so good. Ganaya and Devenu lifted Bath to a sitting position at the edge of the chamber. Take it easy, doctor, Ganaya said. You've had quite a shock to your system. Bath rubbed his mouth, then his eyes. I went into the base of the statue. I was going to build a fire. What happened to the General? To the Major? Devenu asked. John shook his head. He was disoriented, still thinking about what he saw in that state between mental transference and dreaming. He longed to remember his parents in a more meaningful way. They were searching the ferry. I think... I think we were attacked. They could be in trouble, Chang stated the obvious. Ganaya pointed at the console to her right. Their life signs have stabilized. They don't appear to be, Dr. Bath interrupted. There were other robots or simulacrums under Liberty Island. How many, Chang asked. There were five in all. They were in various states of repair. Devenu, Ganaya, and Bath watched Chang flip switches with authority, redirecting power to recharge the coffin. A row of multicolored lights flickered on Chang's console. Then, a warning light flashed. Danielle peered in. What are you doing? Someone has to determine the extent of the damage, Chang said. She pressed a button, eliminating the warning light. What do you mean, Ganai asked. If one simulacrum is damaged, I can transmit into another and repair it. We can put Dr. Bath back into action. Devenu moved to stand between the engineer and the row of consoles. Wait a minute, Chang. Nobody's transmitting anywhere, not until I've briefed the council. Devenu glared at the engineer for a long moment. Chang remained expressionless. Although she was much younger than the other woman, Devenu held her ground. In that moment, Bath understood why the central processor and Shadow Council selected Danielle Devenu to administer the mission. At least for a moment, he respected her. He couldn't help but wonder if he could gain Devenu's confidence. She would make a helpful ally. what do you want me to do?' Bath asked. "'Relax, Dr. Bath,' Devenu touched his shoulder. "'You're grounded until further notice.' Devenu walked to the middle of the laboratory. Behind her, Ganaya assisted Bath. The doctor turned to Chang. She spoke quietly. "'You planned this all along, didn't you, Donna?' "'Planned what?' Bath said." Devenu spoke, her voice raised. Meryl, take the doctor to the infirmary. See to it that he gets the best care possible. Then, you're with me. I want to know exactly what happened here. Aftermath, a Firepit Creative Group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Rhett Davis, Warren Davis, Willem Grief, and Cole Hoopengarner. Original script by Warren Davis, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with music by Warren Davis. Links to the sound effects used for Aftermath can be found in the description section of each episode. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Firepit Creative Group.